This is an ABC podcast. In March this year, something remarkable happened on Russian TV. It was three weeks into the invasion. All of a sudden, a woman appears behind the news anchor. She's wearing a black suit and a necklace with the Ukrainian and Russian flags on it. She basically stormed onto the set of the program. The woman's name is Marina Ovsyanakova, and she was a long-time employee of the top state TV news show in Russia. Marina had seen what was happening in Ukraine, and she'd had enough. She was carrying a placard with an anti-war message in Russian and in English, saying that they're lying to you here, stop the war. Politico reporter Zoya Sheftelovich has since interviewed Marina. The scene switched, there was something else on the screen, and she was sort of dragged off. Getting arrested in Russia is a pretty scary prospect. You might go missing, or be beaten, or tortured, or sent to a forced labour camp. There were people who were very concerned because she disappeared. No one knew where she had gone. No one knew what horrors had befallen Marina Ovsyanakova. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, offered her asylum at the French embassy, but she didn't need it. She was released the following day after paying a small fine, which was kind of mysterious. How had she got off so easily? Zoya says in Russia, opinions were split. Basically, there were two lots of camps, two camps essentially. So there were some people who were saying she was a hero who had kind of spoken out um, because her conscience had not allowed her to continue standing by while this war was being fought. Other people were saying, look, this woman is a stooge. This was, this was a sanctioned protest and uh, a plan by the Kremlin. The thing is, it doesn't matter if she's a plant or not. By letting her go quickly, the Kremlin had successfully sowed doubt in the minds of Russians about whether she was real or fake. It's about people doubting all of the things that are coming out, them doubting anything that's being told to them by the media. When people protest against the Kremlin, it's swiftly shut down. If you're lucky, they'll make you look foolish, like you're a useful idiot. If you're unlucky, you'll be beaten, tortured and imprisoned or killed. It all serves to stamp out protest and dissent before it even begins. Putin is immovable. It's not worth the risk. And yet he's just made a decision that has begun to stir anger in the Russian people. Perhaps change is coming sooner than Putin thinks. There isn't a whole lot of opposition to Vladimir Putin inside Russia, and there hasn't been for many years. When the invasion began, protests were small, sporadic and subtle, and then they disappeared. But in recent months, sparks of serious protest have begun, and Putin's popularity among Russians is sliding. Today, the decision Putin made which may have pushed his people too far. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening. Seriously, though, Russians, let me know if you are listening. Over the last 20 years during the reign of Putin, protest has progressively been less and less tolerated. And since the invasion, it's become even worse. I say invasion, but in Russia, it's a special operation. There are long jail terms for anyone who dares to contradict Putin's official line. News outlets have been shut down, TV stations turned off, and as they've gone off air, 
They've left with a subtle goodbye. In the first week of March, the independent Russian TV channel TV Rain was told it could no longer broadcast. On their final day, the team stood around the news desk, resigned, said they hoped to return and left the studio. Their broadcast then cut to a black and white video of four ballerinas on a stage wearing white tutus, their arms linked, dancing in unison. It was the famous Dance of the Little Swans from the Russian ballet Swan Lake. Six days later, the same image of four ballerinas with their arms linked was on the front page of the independent newspaper Novaya Gazeta. This time, they were standing in front of a fiery mushroom cloud. It was the final edition of the newspaper. They too had been shut down by Putin. So why Swan Lake? What did it mean? For Russians and Ukrainians, the meaning couldn't have been clearer. Ballet, and this ballet in particular, plays a very significant role in Russian politics and history. Swan Lake is arguably Russia's most famous artwork. And in a country where protest is forbidden, it's become a subtle symbol of defiance. Swan Lake was the first ballet written by Russian composer Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. And when it was first staged in 1877, it flopped. Well, initially, Tchaikovsky composed Swan Lake for the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow. Um, and the initial production was choreographically not a success, um, something which is hard for us to imagine today. This is Christina Ezrahi, author of Swans of the Kremlin and Dancing for Stalin, both about the history of Russian ballet. People also weren't very keen on Tchaikovsky's music for the ballet because they thought it was too symphonic. It was the late 19th century and ballet was extremely big in Russia. It was the preferred art form of the Romanov Tsars and the centre of high society in the capital, St. Petersburg. And so people went to see and to be seen um, and it really became a part of um, Russian capital social life um, for the aristocracy and the wealthier merchant classes. Not only did the Romanovs love the ballet, they loved the ballerinas. So there were also quite soon um, amorous emotional links between some of the ballerinas and uh, members of the imperial family or the imperial elite. Yes, the royals were sleeping with the ballet dancers. But Swan Lake wasn't a big deal until after Tchaikovsky was dead. On the first anniversary of his death, the Imperial Ballet Company staged Swan Lake with new choreography and it was finally a hit. For more than 20 years, the Russian people were delighted by productions of the ballet. It was a regular in the Imperial Court. But then... In 1917, the Russian ballet was turned upside down. Well, so was everything else. The Russian Empire, covering a sixth of the globe, was overthrown in a communist revolution which started as a protest by hungry peasants in St. Petersburg and turned into a civil war. The 300-year-old Romanov dynasty was over, the Tsar and his family were dead. Life for everyone, including the ballet dancers, became a misery. Petrograd living conditions were absolutely horrendous. Um, there was no food, um, no firewood. Um, people were sitting in their flats, which were literally freezing in, um, nothing to eat. Swan Lake continued with starving dancers in freezing theatres. Protesting in the streets against the new communist government was not an option. The only way to resist them was to run. 
Throughout the 20th century, Russian defectors formed the backbone of many of the world's great ballet companies. The new Soviet leaders of Russia were sceptical about whether ballet was too elitist and imperial to belong in a communist society. Ballet really had to prove its right to exist, and one of the elements that really helped was that it was actually incredibly popular. The communists decided to embrace it as a way to communicate their message. Swan Lake eventually built the same relationship with the communists that it had with the Tsars. Young men who showed significant talent at ballet were exempted from military service so they could focus on their career. International tours were organised as a way of showing off Russian culture. Which during the Soviet period, whenever there was a state visitor, um, a foreign head of state coming um, to visit uh, the Soviet Union, they would usually be taken to the Bolshoi to watch Swan Lake. A US ambassador to Moscow said that he saw Swan Lake 160 times in seven years. The Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev saw it so many times that he told the prima ballerina it made him sick. He told her, you know, it's a great ballet, but I've seen it so many times that at night I dream of tanks and swans alternating, and he really couldn't handle it anymore. But it remained the most prominent Russian artwork. In the 1980s, it became synonymous with bad news. In the 1980s, um, so in the last decade of the Soviet Union, Swan Lake was shown on Soviet state television um, whenever something abnormal was happening. It became a tradition. Swan Lake played on loop across all radio and TV networks while propagandists figured out how best to report the death of a Soviet leader. And then it played on a loop while they figured out how to report on the death of the Soviet Union itself. The significance of this ballet in Russia changed. It became a direct form of protest against the government, calling for a leader's demise. When Putin passed a law banning what he called gay propaganda... Four ballet dancers dressed as swans linked arms and performed Swan Lake by the famously gay Tchaikovsky outside the Russian embassy in London. In 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, protesters in Ukraine danced Swan Lake to call for the end of Putin's reign. When the invasion began, it was the swan song for independent media outlets TV Rain and Novaya Gazeta as they were shut down. When sanctions pulled Hollywood movies from Russian cinema screens... They were replaced with screenings of Swan Lake. This ballet means a lot of different things to different people. For some, it's a sign that through two apocalyptic world wars, two revolutions, famines, depressions, Lenin, Stalin and Putin, Russian culture continues with little change. For others, it's a form of protest when protest can get you killed. It's a way to remind Putin that the Soviet Union, as powerful and oppressive as it was, did end. And so will he. The lack of protest in Russia against the Ukraine invasion might make it seem like they support it. But a better indication is polling. Trying to describe how Russians feel about Ukraine would be like trying to describe how Australians feel about China or the US. There's a very wide range of opinions. Apart from Moscow and St. Petersburg, the two biggest cities, the population is spread across dozens of smaller regional cities and thousands of rural towns. There are dozens of ethnic minorities. There are beach town resorts and Arctic Circle mining towns. Figuring out what all these people think is difficult, but Denis Volkov is trying his best. 
I'm director at Levada Center in Moscow. The Levada Center is an independent polling company which has existed in some form or another for more than 30 years. We're starting to do public opinion polls even in uh, last years of the Soviet Union. The Levada Center runs opinion polls using methodology from the American Pollsters Association and tries to gauge public opinion. We have to uh, bear in mind that uh, in public opinion polls, probably everywhere we get not uh, what uh, people really think, but what they're ready to share with the poster, with the interviewers. Polls can be wrong, basically, but they're generally a good indication of when things change. I'm saying that they can be pretty good at picking up uh, the vibe. So before February 24th, when the war began, how do Russians feel about Vladimir Putin? Well, the support was uh, already pretty high, though not sky high. At the end of uh, last year, it was around uh, 65% uh, of those who approved his work as president. It sounds pretty good. It's a figure a Western politician would be very happy with. But for a guy in a position like Putin, with virtually complete control of national institutions and media, it's pretty low. Denis Volkov says even many Russians who support Putin don't necessarily believe what he says. Saying that, well, we trust him, but who else there to trust, to support? And maybe he is not doing everything right, but again, in such a uh, context, probably it is uh, better to uh, support him. And the support he has tends to be from older people. 45 and older, they tend to get the news from TV. This is Yevgenia Albats, editor-in-chief of the independent Russian newspaper The New Times and host of a show on the independent Echo of Moscow radio station. They were independent from the Kremlin. And so is the Levada Centre, which Denis Volkov runs. So why were they still allowed to operate? Well, Yevgenia thinks they were serving a purpose for the Kremlin in that they needed some objective journalism to help them keep across what was really happening in Russia. Kremlin had 15 subscriptions to my newspaper. So yes, they were my readers until they were not. Until they were not. After the invasion began, the newspaper was shut down and the radio station was turned off. Vladimir Putin used to kind of ignore protests against him. The police would come in, make some arrests, fine people and let them go. But since the invasion, his tone has shifted. Now he talks about protesters as though they're insects. He says the Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouth. Despite these threats, some opposition to the war rose up and spilled out onto the streets. Russian people don't need this war, we don't want it. I don't know any single person who supports this war. Many thought the war would spell the end for Putin. I'm sure it will, but for sure it's the beginning of his end. But the protests were relatively small, and without any real opposition movement, they were disorganised. Putin cracked down, hard. Not only were thousands arrested, many were beaten and tortured. Rumours began to spread that people seen as opponents of Putin would be conscripted to fight in Ukraine. Faced with this kind of threat, 400,000 Russians made the same decision the elites of the Russian Empire made 100 years earlier. They left. 
Like their great-grandparents, they felt they had no other safe way to protest or refuse to participate in Putin's plans. Yevgenia Albats was one of the people who was forced to leave. She was declared a foreign agent. Which is basically enemy of the state. My lawyers, uh, they told me that I had to leave the country quickly because otherwise uh, I was going to find myself in prison. I didn't want to go to prison. Yevgenia now lives in New York. Denis Volkov's Levada Center has also been declared a foreign agent. Which is not very, <laughs> not very pleasant thing. Despite this, he continued his work from his office in Moscow. Well, we think it's important for Russian society to have uh, at least some information about itself, to have some mirror, and uh, so we will try to go on, but don't uh, don't know how uh, how long it will be possible to do. So here's the question. After this crackdown, after torture and beatings, after 400,000 people fled Russia, what happened to Putin's approval rating? For the gradual rise in, uh, in his popularity, his approval rating went from 63 to almost 83%, so 20% up in the month uh, of escalation and when this uh, war started. While Dennis's research found Russians weren't generally in favour of the war... It was uh, almost 50-50, positive and negative. They didn't blame Putin for what was happening. The majority, about 60%, were blaming the West for what is uh, happening, so that uh, the United States and uh, the uh, NATO allies are escalating uh, this situation. So the war only made Putin more popular among Russians. The same thing happened in 2014 when he invaded Crimea. Attempting to return Russia to greatness with military action seems to make Russians like him more. That's possibly one of the main reasons he does it. But Western countries want to change that, to make sure there's a price for invading. That price comes in the form of sanctions, raising the cost of living for average Russians. So will that make them turn on their leader? Western leaders, including US President Joe Biden, are gathering in Brussels tonight in a show of unity against Russia's invasion. When the war began, the countries supporting Ukraine immediately started putting crushing sanctions on Russia. I can confirm, as I've always said, that nothing is off the table. The specific aim was to ruin the Russian economy. The US and Europe will also target the assets of Russia's central bank. The first target was the Russian banking system cutting some of Russia's banks off from the SWIFT financial transaction system. Then the billionaire oligarchs who support Putin. A Fijian court has ruled to seize a $450 million super yacht that the US claims is owned by a Russian oligarch. Then big Western companies started to shut down their Russian operations and stop selling things to Russians. That includes IKEA, Adidas, Spotify, Netflix, Apple, Starbucks. So did all that turn people against Putin? No, absolute majority blame the West. Ah, well then. As time passed, we saw that uh, people get used to uh, the sanctions. So many older, poorer Putin supporters with fond memories of the Soviet Union kind of like the sanctions. It sets Russia further apart from the West while the young modern Russians in the cities hate them because they can't travel or buy Western brands or watch Western movies. But these city slickers are the people who broadly don't like Putin anyway. 
Travel bans only affect those who can afford to travel and who are interested in travelling. The same with uh, Western goods. Uh, the majority didn't use brands or some uh, expensive uh, goods from the West. Uh-huh. I thought it was interesting that you polled how many people were worried about personal sanctions against Russian businessmen. Uh, no, yeah, no one, no, no, no one, and the attitude was uh, well, very good. You have to introduce the sanctions long before, make them uh, live in uh, in Russia. This is actually a really interesting point. People hope the sanctions will force wealthy Russians to spend their money domestically instead of on yachts, French chateaus, and London penthouses. In fact, many see the sanctions not as a challenge, but as an opportunity for Russia. Many Russians think Putin was too engaged with the West and that the economy was too globalised. Russia became too dependent on the West, uh, on the goods from the West, on the cars, on, uh, on um, clothes from the West, uh, and uh, another thing. And he'll now be forced to make Russia self-sufficient again. And we will do our own goods and uh, our own cars, planes, and so on and so forth. The question is... Is that even possible? Consider this little fable about tractors. Russia needs tractors. They don't have very many of them. Each Russian tractor is currently being asked to look after 10 times more farmland than an Australian or American tractor. Rather than import more of them from Western Europe, Putin wanted Russia to build its own. A few years ago, the Russians had this real priority to try and build a local tractor. This is Politico reporter Zoya Sheftlevich. They had this big announcement that they had done it. The the, um, the minister, I think the farming minister, came out to a farm and unveiled this tractor and it was like a beautiful, sophisticated-looking tractor. And then they were like, oh, look what we've done. And it was a billion-dollar program. They're nice-looking tractors. They're exactly what you'd think of if I asked you to imagine one. Red, shiny, big wheels. And then the internet kind of started zooming in on bits and pieces and it turned out that this was a tractor that was a Czech tractor that had been imported from the Czech Republic as sort of like a builder tractor type of thing, an IKEA furniture thing. So the tractor factory was little more than a bunch of dudes with Allen keys and wordless manuals with strange pictures putting tractors together on top of the cardboard box they came in. They just had essentially a paint workshop that they uh, <laughs> that they were able to kind of run. And meanwhile, who's got those billions of dollars? Well, of course, it's gone to enrich the many, many people who have their hand in the kitty. The CEO of the tractor company was put under house arrest. The local tractor program failed. Russia had to keep relying on the West for the components they needed to build things. And that's a problem because the war started and access to these components was immediately cut off. Things like airbags. New Russian cars are being sold at the moment without airbags because they can't get hold of them. An even more serious problem is a lack of microchips. Most of the world's most complex microchips come from Taiwan and South Korea, both of which have cut Russia off from their supply. We've even seen some um, anecdotal evidence of Russian quote-unquote tourists travelling to countries like Finland or Norway buying a whole bunch of washing machines and, uh, and fridges, clawing out the microchips in them and just sort of leaving the fridges and washing machines behind and taking the microchips and suitcases back home to try to replenish some of those supply lines. 
The US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says this is hitting Russia's military capability. We have reports from Ukrainians that when they find Russian equipment, military equipment, on the ground, it's filled with semiconductors that they took out of dishwashers and refrigerators. The microchip question and the question of those supplies is really key to the um, ability of the Russians to win this war. And I think that's what we're seeing on the ground. That's getting in the way of Russia's ability to use their most sophisticated weapons, like hypersonic missiles, which fly faster than the speed of sound and require highly advanced targeting and flight systems. They're short of microchips. They're short of tractors and airbags. They're short of long-range missiles. But average Russians may not have noticed a massive change in their quality of life. Yet. Huge oil and gas revenues have offset the collapse of other parts of the economy, allowing Putin to claim that the Western sanctions have had no effect. That's until the 21st of September, when Putin made a decision he had long avoided, one that deeply affected every family in Russia and sent hundreds of thousands of people fleeing for the borders. He started sending Russian men to war, whether they liked it or not. When the invasion began, Vladimir Putin tried to keep Russian civilians out of it as much as possible. Ukrainian philosopher Mikhailo Minikov says Putin really didn't want to conscript everyday Russians into the war effort. This is something that Putin tried to avoid. He wanted to have a small war made by a professional army. But seven months into the war, Ukraine was pushing Putin's professional army into a corner. So here, Russia failed. Now they, they start a big war with the mobilization of huge numbers of uh, their population. In announcing the mobilization of Russians, Putin said only citizens currently in the armed forces reserve would be conscripted, with a focus on people with military experience. That was a lie. It was far wider than he said. The reaction in Russia was massive and furious. A rare show of dissent and disapproval on the streets of Russia. People who were willing to put up with rising prices, with restrictions on free speech and being cut off from the Western world, were not willing to be sent into the Ukrainian mud to die. (laughs) This is how thousands responded to the partial mobilisation policy announced by President Vladimir Putin. The protests weren't just in big cities, they were across the country. A large proportion of the people protesting were women. Many were mothers, angry that their sons may be forced to fight in Ukraine. People set fire to army recruitment officers. Thousands were arrested. And the Russian army, in its desperation to get anyone to fight, gave guns and ammo to disgruntled, angry men. Some men turned on the officers who had recruited them. At a training camp for new conscripts, a dispute over religion led to a mass shooting. Instead of facing this, many turned to their last resort. They went to the airport. Flights out of Russia reportedly skyrocketed and sold out fast, amid concerns men of fighting age would soon be barred from leaving the country. Another exodus began. Like in 1917, people driven by fear and anger decided their only option was to run. Estimates indicate that around a million Russians have fled the country since the beginning of the invasion. The major feeling is uh, shock and uh, fear and that people worried about uh, 
not many feel uh, proud of uh, the country uh, as uh, uh, half of uh, uh, Russians were in February. The mobilisation was chaotic. Men were deployed to Ukraine less than two weeks after they were conscripted. Less than a month after the announcement, conscripted men began to return home in body bags. And it seems to have made very little difference on the battlefield. Ukraine is still advancing. In Russia, the past is very important. Many Russians, Putin included, think the best way to improve the country is to bring back things from the past, elements of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. Two regimes where dissent and protest were outlawed. But despite that, both those regimes, which everyone assumed would last for centuries, completely collapsed. The Russian Empire was immovable until it suddenly wasn't. Soviet Union was immovable until it suddenly wasn't. Thanks to Vladimir Putin's own decisions, he now presides over an increasingly isolated country, crippled by corruption, with little prospect of future economic growth, and a population upset that their sons are being dragged into a war against their will. If Russia's history is anything to go by, even the scariest and most dictatorial regimes are not immune from collapse. Vladimir Putin is immovable. Until he suddenly isn't. This podcast is written by me, Matt Bevan. Series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Next, in our last episode of the season, how might this war end? As Ukraine's army steadily reclaims its territory, neither Volodymyr Zelensky or Vladimir Putin look like backing down. Can the war end with both these men still in power? That's next on Russia If You're Listening.